prophet, he tells us to do things in a certain way, we follow it. He tells us how to pray, we follow him. Allah has a sunnah as well, and that's an entire discussion on its own. What do you mean by the sunnah of Allah? But Allah works in certain ways. And one of those ways of Allah is that He does not destroy a community who have gotten to the brink of rebellion until He ensures that He sends a messenger and He gives the people ample opportunity to ask forgiveness. So with Prophet Noah, it wasn't 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, it was actually hundreds of years that they were given the chance to repent, to go from their evil ways of idolatry, of polytheism, of sin, of wickedness, of debauchery that they were involved in. And eventually a time came where that was it. And Allah told, told Prophet Noah that this is the order, build the ark under our supervision. The ark is built, a flood comes, not only are the people of his community who you know, did not follow him, not only are they drowned, but as we know, his own son is also drowned in the flood. And he protests to Allah. He says that this is my son, he's min ahli, he's of my family. And Allah says, innahu laysa min ahlik, innahu amalun ghayru salih. He is not of your family, he might be your blood relation, your biological son, but he is an unrighteous and unworthy action, Allah calls him. But that was after years of propagation of a message. And as I'd be mentioning every night that the message that he brought was very simple. Worship God, know God, know and worship your creator, have the taqwa, the reverence, the piety of God, and obey the Prophet. It's those three factors which make up religion. Aqaid, the theology, which we have to all believe in on our own. You can't come to God on the day of judgment and Allah will say, why did you believe in me as the one God? And you'll say, well, my madrasa teacher told me to believe in one God, so I followed her or him. You can't say, well, I heard it in a Muharram lecture, there's one God and so I believed it. No, we all have to come to a realization of one God on our own. Yes, we follow the scholars who bring the proofs and the evidence, and we learn from our teachers, but ultimately we have to have conviction in the usul deen the principles of this religion. And then Prophet Noah was telling the people that you also have to have morality, right? It's not enough to believe in God, but you be a wicked, immoral person. You say, I believe in Allah, I believe in the Prophet, and I follow the Ahlul Bayt, but then when I go to work, I can cheat customers, I can steal, I can rip off people. No, that goes against the ethos of religion. And then obviously the third part of religion, which is integral to our uh, life, and we will look at that in the next two nights, is the practice, the ahkam, the fit that we follow, praying, fasting, charity, you know, all of those things that are maraja taqlid, may Allah protect and preserve all of them, that they mention in their books of Islamic law. And as we've been saying that, the ahkam is a very small percentage of the Quran, maybe 500 ayat at most. Akhlaq is almost a third of the Quran, 2,000 verses of the Quran just about morality. And obviously the rest of the Quran talks, uh, another large portion is about the Day of Judgment, 2,000 ayat. That's about, what, 4,500 verses? You've got 6,300 verses in the Quran, so you're left with about 1,800 verses about the past, the past prophets, the enemies of God. You've got stories from all the time, from Adam to Noah to Abraham. 
You've got the flood. You've got the story of the children of Israel. You've got all of these other stories that even within them you get. And we get moral lessons on how to follow the prophets of Allah. Last night we began this uh, discussion on akhlaq. We talked about the fact that in the world that we live in today, ethics are of two different types. You have what are called secular ethics, where the secularists say that you don't need God to know morality. You can use reason, you can use intellect, you can use uh, these sorts of tools. You don't need God to come and tell you what is good and bad. And we also mentioned that there are religious ethics. And we also hopefully drew the conclusion that Secular ethics cannot address the uh, evils of society because obviously with secular ethics, the bar continuously moves because the rules are made by those who benefit from them. So for example, in Canada, when cannabis was, was legalized about five or six years ago, I think in 2016, you know, there were obviously hands at play. There were people I'm sure who were lobbying the government, just as it happens in many countries, Things are legalized, such as you know, weapons in America, the gun industry, the NRA. They lobby the government. They give massive donations to get laws pushed. So morality, from a secular point of view, we can never accept because it's not about what's right or beneficial or good. It's about who has the most money, who's got the loudest voice in Parliament Hill, who has the loudest voice at the White House, at the Congress, at the Senate. And so we made a conclusion that only religion can give us morality, and not only religion, but only the religion of Islam, and not only Islam, but only the teachings of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad, alayhim was salatu was salam. Tonight I want to piggyback off of that discussion and take it to another level. Our moral is morality, is the moral system, the, the moral compass as I called it last night. Is it relative or is it fixed? Does it change? Does morality or the moral practices that we have in Islam, are they fixed and they can never, there's no deviation? Or is there room for a bit of maneuvering around there? And you might think, well, what's the, what's the difference? If, if a rule in akhlaq is set, why should I be allowed to have flexibility in it? If a rule is set by the Quran, by the Prophet, by the Ahlul Bayt, then why should I even worry about there being room for deviation from that? You know, let me just give you one example. I talked about last night in chapter 49, Surah Al-Hujarat, which I, remind, which I mentioned is the chapter of Islamic ethics. There's the verse where Allah talks about the fact that riba, backbiting, talking about somebody else is a major sin, right? And Allah compares it to eating the flesh of your dead brother. Nobody in this room is a cannibal. Right? When we want to eat meat, we go to the grocery store, we buy a pound of beef or some chicken or some lamb or goat. We don't eat one another. That's illegal, it's haram, it's nasty. But when we talk about other people, we are eating, their, we're eating the flesh of our dead brother, our real brother or our spiritual brother. But what if I were to tell you we have hadith where we are allowed to do riba in at least three instances and it's not considered impermissible. 
we're allowed to sometimes do riba, to talk about somebody. I'll give you one example of the three. Say that a somebody in the community is one, has proposed to somebody else. One of the young men in our community proposes to one of the sisters. And you know that boy, or you know that girl. And the other, one of the, from the, somebody from the other family comes to you and they say this proposal has come. Do you know this boy? And now you know that unfortunately he drinks alcohol, he smokes drugs, he does this and that. In those instances, we're allowed to do riba because there is a greater good that would come out of it. Because you are, you know, marriage is obviously a very critical issue in, in anybody's life. It's not just a one, two, a one week or a two week thing. This is a lifelong commitment. And sure, you'll tell me people can change, they can convert, they can become better believers, and I don't doubt that. But at that particular time, that is where a critical decision has to be made. And so Islam tells us if you know, if somebody approaches you, first of all, and you know something about that person that would cause the potential other spouse maybe difficulty or stress or anxiety or worse in marriage, you are obligated by the religion to let that person know those things that would affect their decision-making process. Nothing more than that. So yes, riba is still haram, generally speaking, but there are exceptions to the rule. And there are exceptions for many of the moral teachings. And that's why we need to know this, that is Islamic ethics relative or is it fixed? Because it will help us come get out of situations we may find ourselves in, and it will help us navigate that we do the right thing, we say the right thing, and that we ensure protection and safety of our community. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Chapter 30, Surah Al-Rum, the chapter of the Romans. Verse number 30, so very easy to memorize, 30-30. It, it is one of the most, I mean, obviously all of the ayat of the Quran are important. We should memorize as much of the Quran as we can. But there are certain ayat, you know, which really stand out. Surah Al-Baqarah, 286 verses. But Ayat Al-Qursi, verse 255, is an extremely important verse because Rasulullah gave importance to it. Right? Other ayat, for example, we have the ayat about the wilaya of Amir al-Mu'mineen. Surah Al-Ma'idah, chapter 5, an important chapter. But if you look at the ver chapter, what well, you see in the ma'waliyukumullah, about the wilaya of Amir al-Mu'mineen, it's important to know that verse. And you know what, just incidentally, off, off, off topic, but as Shias, as followers of the Ahlul Bayt, we have to... Identify those key ayat, memorize them, know the translation, and know the commentary. When a non-Shia comes to us and says, where do you prove the walayat of Ali in the Quran? We should be able to say, look, there's verse 555. There is, you know, the verse about ikmaluddin, ayom akmaltu lakum dinukum. We should know that. We should know these key ayat, memorize them, know them, study them, find the commentaries, write them down on your paper or your tablets. And keep those because there will become a time when you'll have a debate with somebody online or in person and you need to know these ayats. Right? That's a way, a, a way forward inshallah. But let me come back to 3030. It's the verse of the Quran which speaks to us about what we call the fitrah. 
the human nature, the human condition, what we are born with, right? I talked about this last night that science may be able to genetically modify human beings in the future as we have GMO food. And I'm sure they're working on genetically engineering human beings to be a superior race, maybe to have a physique or a, a level of power and strength to work in a military or have powerful eyesight or what have you. But Allah shows us in chapter 3030 that there is a fitra, there is a innate human condition, not physically, but at the spiritual level that Allah has put within human beings. Muslim, non-Muslim, every human born has the innate fitra, this human nature. And so Allah says, فَأَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ لِلْدِينِ حَنِيفًا فِتْرَةَ اللَّهِ الَّتِي فَتَرَ النَّاسَ عَلَيْهَا لَا تَبْدِيلَ لِخَلْكِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمُ وَلَكِنَّ أَكْثَرَ النَّاسِ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ Allah says then set your face, your being upright, your spiritual compass, your focus, your identity should be straightforward towards Allah, not towards the East or the West or this ideology or that, you know, system. No, towards that one true pure faith, what he calls the Deen al-Hanif, the same Deen, the same religion that Nabi Ibrahim promoted that all of the previous prophets brought this pure, unadulterated, and corrupt religion of Islam, of submission. And then Allah says that that is the original pattern that, he, that God created human, humankind on. We have, as I mentioned last night, that ingrained fitra of akhlaq. All human beings, regardless of what religion their parents subscribe to, are born knowing that, for example, to steal is bad. To lie is bad, to cheat is bad, to physically hurt somebody is bad. Those are ingrained, we're born with that. But as I talked about the fact, if you'll recall last night, that three factors skew our compass. Right? It could be our parents, it can be our culture, or it could be the community or society that we live in. But Allah says that that is fitratullah allati fatra nasa alayha. Allah created humanity. You can't change that. They cannot genetically change those, uh, those understandings that we have. And that is the way that we will move until the, end of, until the last human being comes into this world. But what we see in this verse, brothers and sisters, is this fact that there are certain immutable truths which will never change. Like I, we're talking about akhlaq tonight. There are certain principles which will never change, even if a government were to legislate riba. It will always be haram. It will always be people will be born knowing these things. And so what we want to look at tonight is how or where does Islam stand? Is morality relative or is it fixed? Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So the short answer to this question, is ethics relative or fixed? 
We would say, A, that religion itself is a fixed reality. Right? What Allah gave to all of the prophets, the deen, the religion, is itself a fixed reality. But the example I gave probably a few nights ago about how you have different, different operating systems, our iOS, every year a new version comes out, how Android, a new version comes out every year. Islam, submission to God, this deen hanif, it changed. The religion itself, the practical, the practicality, the practical Islam, submission is, is fixed, but it goes through transformations as humanity begins to progress. So Allah tells us in the Quran, for example, in relation to fasting, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu kutiba alaykum as-siyam kama kutiba alalladina min qablikum la'allakum tattakun. That fasting has been prescribed, all you who believe, Fasting has been prescribed to you just as the communities before you had fasting so that perhaps you may gain in your God consciousness. So fasting is a fixed reality. Judaism today has fasting. If you know Christians, you can talk to them. Christianity has fasting. Fine, it might not be a complete dry fast as we follow. They might eat certain food, they might drink, but they will re refrain from certain things, but they have a form of fasting. But the form of it, right, the form has changed. Just like the operating system has changed for our phones, the rules of Islam, the rules of Allah have changed. So the principle is universal. Fasting has always been there. There is a goal behind it. But the reality of the practice has gone through transformation. Praying is the same, Hajj is the same. We read stories about Nabi Ibrahim salam, doing Hajj. Well, what, did he do exactly what we did or what we do in Hajj? Probably not, right? But there was a Hajj, there was a pilgrimage at that time. Nabi Adam, he comes on earth as the first human being. If he had to do a pilgrimage, there had to be a way to do it. But there was no, for example, Zamzam at that time. There was maybe no, uh, you know, the, the pillars for a Muzdalifah. Maybe those weren't there, but, or the pillars at Minna rather. But there was a concept of pilgrimage towards the house of Allah. So what we understand is that the religion is fixed, but then the practicality will change over time. Right? The ahkam, which we'll look at in the next couple of nights, but we have many examples in ahkam, in the fiqh, that go with the time that we live in. I gave an example last night, and thinking about it this morning, I want to offer a bit more of a clarification on it. Because maybe some people might have left with a bit of a confusion. I gave the example how, and this is related to both morality and, and ahkam and the fiqh. I gave you the example of if you go for, let's say, a job interview and there's a member of the opposite sex, we're not allowed to shake their hand, right? Or have physical contact. I said that was haram and that's, that ruling stands. But then a question comes up is what if you are a woman and you have a medical emergency? And A, either there's no female doctors in the city that you live in, or B, you have such a medical condition that there are no female experts in that area. What do you do? You can't say, well, it's haram for the man to touch me or look at my body because it's haram, so I'd rather die. No, that's haram to do that. So the rule is still that it's not allowed, but because there is an urgency which is much more important, that ruling changes. So then a woman, if she can't find a female doctor, she can go to a male doctor and have the medical condition treated. Or for a man as well. If a man has an issue and 
There are no male doctors or experts in that area. He can go to a female doctor. So under general circumstances, for example, the rules between men and women are fixed. But when an urgency comes, which is much more important, that is where religion says you can bend the rules only to that extent that you need to solve that problem. And that's why even scholars say that although pork is haram and eating meat not slaughtered Islamically is haram, but if you are in a situation where you're going to die and there's nothing else on earth left to eat, there's no vegetables, there's no fruits, there's no grains, you can't slaughter an animal, then we're allowed to eat that pig. Only in the amount that will keep us alive. To eat more than that is haram. To not eat it is also haram. That's an extreme, extreme circumstance. Not that people say, well, I moved to a new country and I can't get halal meat, so I'll just eat anything. No, you have fish, you have thousands of options. At Latin, you know, Latin, you know, it comes down to it, you go to the farm and you buy the chicken, you slaughter the chicken yourself. And we hopefully will never be put in that predicament where we have to eat anything haram or drink haram, but it is there as an exception to the rule. So that's ahkam, I just wanted to clear that off and show us that the, the reality of the rulings do change based on a circumstance. And again, why I bring, bring this up in this Muharram session is to not necessarily spoon feed us, okay, what is haram and halal? But if we know the principle, then it makes life easier. So you don't have to email me. Although if you want to email, you can. I'm not saying don't email me. Or you don't have to email your, a scholar that you trust. What do I do in this situation? No, I know the, the principle that, okay, X, Y, and Z is normally not allowed. But in case of urgency, like a medical issue, I can do. I can go to the doctor. Right? Because if we learn the principles of Islam, then we apply our scenario to that principle. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, some youth in Ontario contacted me. They were very energetic youth, very into creativity. They wanted to you know, spread the message of Aba Abdullah and the Ahlul Bayt in a contemporary format. And so they wanted to compose, I don't want to call it music, but they wanted to compose poetry with a beat that would be halal. And obviously we know that music is not haram. There are styles which are haram, but the maraja clearly tell us that there are certain styles of music which are permissible. Ayatollah Sistani in his book, A Code of Practice for Muslims in the West, he clearly says music is of two types, haram and halal. Keep away from the haram, indulge in the halal. And music obviously has its own definition. I can't go into that tonight, but he gives us this demarcation. And so anyways, these youth contacted me and said, we're creating some poetry with beats. Can you listen to it and tell us, tell me if it's haram or halal? And I'm like, you know what? Here's the principles. You just follow these rules and you can tell whether it's haram or halal, you know? It's, it's like asking the Molana, you know, is that restaurant halal over there? Unless you're gonna pay for his bill for to eat everything on the menu, he's probably gonna tell you just go and find out is it slaughtered Islamically, cooked properly, and go with it, go with the flow then. Right? So this is the goal, is that not that we remove scholarship from the community, but as believers, you know, we may come or come into a situation where we don't know what to do. We don't have access to a scholar, we don't have our app on our phone that we could get the details. But if I know a principle, then I can apply that because I've studied it, I've learned it, I've understood it, and then I can put that into my life without having to worry about it.
صلوا على محمد وعلى محمد Let me show you an example from the Quran in which shows us which shows us that the ethics can change depending on the scenario or the situation. Because what I've given to you now is just some theory. But let me back it up with a story of the Quran. So chapter 18, Surah Al-Kahf, right, the chapter of the cave. And if you haven't gone through this chapter, and especially the translation of it in the commentary, I would definitely advise all of you to read chapter 18. Obviously, again, the whole Quran is important, but there are so many unique stories in chapter 18. You've got the story of the people of the cave, people who were uh, initially Christians, who were dealing with a corrupt society, their youth, as Allah calls them, that indeed these were youth who believed in their Lord, and so we increase them in guidance. Their youth who basically can't deal with the corruption of society, they lock themselves in a cave, they wake up 300 years later, They go back to the society, they try and buy something with the currency they have, and this is outdated currency, you can't use it anymore. And there's a whole story, but there's also the story of Dhul Karnayn, who is this you know, individual. But there's a really beautiful story about a man who is not known in the Quran, his name isn't mentioned. He's a very mystical individual, whom we consider to be Al-Khidr. I'm hoping you've heard the name of Al-Khidr. He is not known in the Quran by name. Even this story, we assume based on a hadith of the Ahlul Bayt that it's about Al-Khidr and his journey with Prophet Musa They go through many different stages, many events happen. But there's three things that happen in the story between Musa and Al-Khidr. And Al-Khidr was a man of great wisdom. And incidentally, you know, we call Dua Kumail the Dua of Al-Khidr, correct? So we actually believe that Al-Khidr is alive till today, on earth, physically, in the flesh. Just like Prophet Isa has been, is alive but he's taken up to another realm, but Al-Khidr is alive, living, breathing. We have uh, traditions that say he met Rasulullah, he met Amir al-Mu'mineen, this is why we have the Dua of Kumail, which is known as the Dua of Al-Khidr, that Khidr taught this to Imam Ali, if not the whole Dua verbatim, And maybe not in Arabic, scholars don't know what they, how he taught the dua. But somehow Al-Khidr gave Amir al-Mu'mineen snippets of this dua, what we read you know, every Thursday night. So he's a very unique individual. Unfortunately, I don't find anything in English about him available. But anyways, in the story in chapter 18, he does three things. And he told Musa, he says, you will not be able to bear what I'm going to do. He says, إِنَّكَ لَن تَسْتَتِئَ مَعِيَا Sabran, you don't have the patience to deal with what I'm going to do. Because he was up here at knowledge and ma'rifah. And Musa, although he became or he was given the status of an ulul azm prophet, Al-Khidr says, you still can't bear what I'm going to do. You're going to ask me question after question after question. And you're not going to accept it until we part and I'll tell you the wisdom of what I do. So he does three things. He finds a boat in the, in the middle of, uh, at, the, at the dock of a, of a port. He goes and he drills a hole in the boat. Musa's thinking, what's this guy doing? This is a, a, a perfectly sound boat. He's putting a hole in it. He's destroying private property. They move on in the journey. Khidr says, look, I'm not going to tell you. Just let's walk. Number two, they find a young boy. Kids out there playing. He kills the kid. Boom. You know. 
murder right there in front of everybody. He's killing somebody. Musa's perplexed. What is this man doing? He wrecked a boat. Now he's killing somebody, a young child, innocent, masum child. Musa asked him, what are you doing? He's like, didn't I tell you, you don't have the patience to deal with what I'm doing? Okay, fine. They move on to the third uh, station. They get to a town. They ask the people of the town, you know, can we have some food? The people of the town just, you know, push them away. But then Al-Khidr finds a wall. It's a dilapidated wall that's about to crumble and fall down. He gets his cement together. He's a handyman. He's a Mr. Fix-It. He fixes up the wall and they move on. And Musa's like, what is this guy doing? He's, you know, he's destroying private property. He's involved in murder. And now he's working for free. He's a, what's this man doing? And then when he asks, and Al-Khidr says, look, didn't I tell you from the first stage of our journey that you don't have the patience to deal with what I'm about to do? Then Al-Khidr says, look, let me tell you what I, what I did. Again, you can read the chapter of the Quran, chapter 18, the stories there, but basically he says the boat, there was a king or a government leader, and he was confiscating people's boats. He would go and see, oh, there's a boat, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take that, I'm going to take that. But when he found that your boat had, when that man's boat had a hole in it, he didn't want a, a defective boat, but it, he made a hole in such a way it could be easily fixed. Right? Normally speaking, for you and I, to go and you know break something, to go out in the parking lot tonight and find somebody's car and smash the window, that's not a right thing to do. But look at the way that Al-Khidr was doing it. So mora mora morali uh, morally speaking, it's not right to do what he did, but there was a greater purpose. The child he killed, you can say you can't commit murder, there's no good reason. But he tells, uh, he tells Musa that look, that boy who was there that I killed, Allah wanted me to do that, and Allah wanted to give the parents a much better child. And hadith tell us that that mother and father lost that boy, the mother got pregnant with a daughter, from that daughter 70 generations of prophets came. But killing is never good, right? But morally it's not good, but there was a reason here, and Allah, Allah pushed him to do it, because that was, and he's not going to get a sin for it, that was his obligation. The wall, he says, well, there was two orphans in the city. They didn't have mother and father, but their parents or their father had buried some treasure under that wall. And when the children would grow up, they would get that treasure and they would be self-sufficient. So yes, I didn't get paid for the job. But the fact is, is that Allah wanted to provide for those two orphans. And so I did that. You know, normally speaking, we don't usually work for free. And, you know, people say, well, I'll volunteer at the center, I'll volunteer at an organization. That's definitely good to volunteer. You know, people who, for example, this center we're in tonight, this is run by volunteers. I don't think people that come and open the door and close the door and do the grass and the maintenance, I don't think they get paid, right? So volunteerism is definitely great. But at the same time, as a community, we always have to recognize the fact that our communities cannot be sustained on volunteers. There is a time to volunteer, and there is a time when you need, let's say, professional help, you have to pay. And as I mentioned this a couple nights ago about the wilaya that we have over one another, that we shouldn't think, well, he's a fellow brother, or she's a fellow sister, they should do it free sabilillah. No, fee sabilillah is one thing, but if you have a professional doing a job, you have to compensate them. Just as you would hire an outside contractor, 
and you'll pay them on time their, their amount and they may give you a discount if they see this as a house of God, which is great. But as a community, we also have to recognize to contribute and support our own people in our community. Yes, they'll come and do it for free. They don't want recognition. You know, like the Ahlul Bayt, لا نريد منكم جزاء ولا شكورا. We don't want your rewards or awards or accolades or you know uh, dedications or anything. We just do it for the love of God. But as a community, we have to recognize that we have to help lift each other up out of not poverty, but to help one another out, to give our own people, right? Keep the money within our community. Many communities do this. You go to some other religions and they will hire people from their own faith background. They'll put job postings in their own churches or synagogues or temples or masjids, right? They won't look outside of the community. They'll look inwards. And if they can't find somebody, then they'll go out. But as a community, we have to keep our money in our community. We shouldn't give money to others. Why? We have mu'mineen, brothers and sisters who are professionals, experts, they do a good job. Hire them. Bring them on board. Pay them the, the, the right wage. Don't ask for a discount all the time. Do it, give them the money, and we move forward towards the time of our 12th Imam. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So let me conclude this in the next few moments tonight. That in short, morality will always stay stable. But the behavior will change depending on the situation. As Al-Khidr, he did those three actions. The morality, the morals of killing are still there. The morality of uh, destruction of private property is still there. It's still not something you and I can do. What he did to build up that wall, you know, without taking money, the morality of that was still there. But the behavior would change based on the situation, the scenario that we're in. I gave you the example at the beginning about riba. Riba will always be haram. But there are situations will, which will change it, in which case that haram would no longer be attached to it. Because Allah knows the intention why we're doing it, as long as we don't overstep the bounds, we don't exceed what we're talking about when it comes to speaking about somebody else, we're okay. We're not going to be classified as committing a sin. Lying is always haram. But there are times when lying becomes permissible. Right? So to conclude and to uh, summarize this as we move on tonight, is that just as we will see with ahkam, the fit that it will change, akhlaq, the morality will always stay, but we have to look at the situation we're in, judge what is happening and that means we have to have a very broad vision of Islam we have to know the Quran we have to know the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt as much as we can or we tap into scholars who know and who can give us that guidance but we have to be at a level where we can also try and recognize ourselves that am I now in a situation where I have to follow the letter of the law or am I allowed to die, you know, deviate from it a bit because there's a greater good involved in that? And it won't happen overnight. It might take us months or years to get to that level. But ultimately, we have to, as a community, move forward. We can't remain stagnant. We can't remain you know, um, in a state where we're not progressing in our Islam. We have to always be thinking and uh, taking steps forward in our understanding because ultimately, 
and we'll see this tomorrow and the night after that, when we learn the rules of Islam, it actually makes our life a whole lot easier. You know, they say in the West that ignorance is bliss, but actually in Islam, ignorance is not bliss. It makes your life much more difficult. So when we learn the rules, we learn where we can deviate, where there are what I'll call legal loopholes, it will make our life thousand times easier because we will know what to do in any situation and we will then be able to fulfill our obligation to Allah and get the rewards which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised us. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Allah.